Okay, well, welcome everybody um, to our Sociology Department public lecture. I want to issue a welcome to you all in the name of the Sociology Department, but also especially in the name of the Politics and Society group, those of uh, me and my colleagues who work on issues of politics in that department, um, who've put together um, the public debate we have this evening. And I, I suppose just by way of introduction, what I want to point out is that many of us, like many of you, must have been looking at contemporary events over the last year before and after the general election and hearing the newly reinvigorated Conservatives, who are of course now central to the government of this country, describing themselves as Liberals or Progressives or even in some cases as Red Tories. And, and it must have occurred to some of you, as it did to us, that that was a somewhat interesting and unusual uh, way of describing themselves because the conservative tradition has historically thought of itself as anathema to liberalism, progressivism, certainly to anything to do with uh, redism, um, if there is such a thing, certainly to socialism. So we decided as a, as a way of having a publicly accessible debate about this to bring together two uh, well-known commentators who've thought deeply about questions of conservatism um, to try and illuminate the extent to which the new conservatives can really be described as conservative. And it's a way, we hope, of, as I say, having a publicly accessible discussion about what conservatism actually is. Um, now, conservatives, of course, govern this country very frequently. In fact, for more than 70% of the last century, they govern the country, but less frequently are they discussed in academic forums and so we hope that this will um, give us an opportunity to, um, to look at it uh, in a closer way than normally. Now, the two people we've got here today, I'm just going to briefly introduce them. What's going to happen is they're both going to speak uh, for about 20 minutes or so, and then there's going to be a period of about 10 or 15 minutes of chair-led discussion in which I'll ask them to clarify some things between themselves, and then we're going to throw it open to you and you can ask um, Ask them what, what you would like to ask them, and they can respond as they will. So let me first just introduce uh, our two speakers. First, Professor Roger Scruton um, on the right. Um, professor Scruton was for, for many years, for, for more than 20 years, a professor of philosophy at, at Birkbeck College in the University of London. I mean, he now divides his time, I think it's true to say, between the United States, where, amongst other things, he's a researcher at the American Enterprise Institute, a, a think tank, and here in the UK, where he's currently and for some years visiting professor of philosophy at Oxford University, and where also he's a farmer in Wiltshire. Um, he's done many things um, in his um, scholarly career. He's been the editor of the conservative journal Salisbury Review, and I just want to mention one thing. He was actively involved in the period prior to 1989, along with a number of other academics and scholars, many of them on the left, as it happens, um, in supporting dissidents in Eastern and Central Europe. And for that work, he was honoured um, a few years ago by the, Czechoslovakian, by the Czech government and the Slovakian government. Um, he's got wide-ranging interests, focusing especially on questions of aesthetics, but also, and that's why it's important for us today on social and political thought, where he's identified with defending a traditional form of conservative political philosophy. And in that area, he has numerous books, The Meaning of Conservatism, A Dictionary of Political Thought, Arguments for Conservatism, and most recently this year, The Uses of Pessimism and the Dangers of False Hope. 
So uh, that's our first speaker, and so as not to just interrupt the flow of events, I'll, I'll introduce um, uh, Daniel Finkelstein. Daniel is a, is a graduate of our August institution, the London School of Economics, and he was for many years in the 1980s a member of the Social Democratic Party, which, um, as, as I'm sure you all know, was a splinter group of right-wing people in the Labour Party who, who left because they thought it was um, too well, socialist, I guess. And he was a close ally of a leading figure in that Social Democratic Party, David Owen. And when, they, when, the, when the people around David Owen decided to resist joining with the Liberals, something which he seems to have managed now to achieve by a circuitous route, um, he then joined the Conservatives. And he's been actively involved in the Conservatives for more than 20 years. He worked in the Conservative Research Department for a number of years, and he was the political advisor to the then leader of the opposition, William Hague, from 1997 to 2001. In 2001, he joined The Times, where he currently works, and he's the chief leader writer there and the executive editor. But more importantly, perhaps for us, um, he was actively involved in the Demos think tank's Progressive Conservative Project, which attempted to uh, flesh out some of these ideas that people close to the current Prime Minister have been articulating. And many of you will no doubt have seen him. He's a regular on BBC's Newsnight and other, other programs. So those are our two speakers. And as I say, we're going to hear from them sequentially and then proceed with our discussion. Professor Scruton. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I'm um, going to talk very briefly more as a philosopher than as a politically engaged person because um, it seems to me that the question that we're asked to consider is just to what conservatism really is and how does the present uh, Conservative Party match up to the definition. Uh, now, um, of course, it's um, always difficult to define a political philosophy and I think that people who've tried to define conservatism have always been pulled in two quite different directions. One towards a certain social uh, co conception, a conception of what society is, and the other towards a certain uh, idea of economic freedom and the uh, basis of, of wealth creation, which uh, has been more associated in historically with liberalism than with conservatism. And it has always been a difficulty for practicing conservatives to reconcile these two. And I think it's a difficulty that still remains. But um, I, I shall talk about the social side because I think that's where the uh, philosophical thinking has always been expended. Now, as the name implies, conservatism seems to suggest the uh, uh, desire and perhaps attempt to conserve things. Uh, and then that means that it's, of course, contingent upon history. What we can conserve and what we want to conserve always depends upon what we have and what remains to us. We always inherit a situation which has been uh, changed, maybe without our, our wanting it, and in any case without our ability to do anything about it, so always the agenda of a conservative movement or a conservative political party will change as history changes. And our country today, I think, has, is emerging from a period of quite systematic assault on its uh, social and political inheritance. 
uh, and um, has which has involved not only uh, changing and indeed undermining certain of our important political institutions, but also changing the way we do things, the way we think, and also our sense of uh, political sovereignty. Our political class has more or less totally surrendered to the European machine. Many people think this is a, a good thing uh, because the country is so feeble that it couldn't possibly stand on its own. Um, but others, of course, and I think this is a widespread feeling, are not content with this and feel that it has never been properly discussed, nor have they had the chance uh, ever to express their own opinions about it. So that uh, we have emerged into a very uh, novel situation where the question what to conserve has become as important as the question whether we should actually be in the business of conserving things at all. Now, I think that there is an underlying philosophy to conservatism uh, and that it's very much a modern movement in, uh, in uh, politics. And it began in the 18th century largely in reaction to the Enlightenment, but in particular in our country in reaction to the French Revolution, uh, about which Edmund Burke, the found, founding father of British conservatism, wrote a very famous book. And in that book, he laid down certain principles which I think are still uh, of great importance. They are not principles which tell us what we, to, what we can do, but they are principles which tell us what the truth is about politics. How we can uh, apply them in the particular circumstances that are ours is a real problem that politicians may or may not be able to address. But his concern was to point out uh, that there are truths about society which have been were, were overlooked by the French revolutionaries and uh, have indeed been overlooked by most progressive movements ever since. His first thought was that societies don't consist of people living now only. Uh, of course, uh, at any particular moment, all, the only ones that can decide are those living now. But that which binds them as a society is a kind of partnership between the living, the unborn, and the dead. All our emotions are inherited from people, most of whom are probably, uh, are probably not known to us. Uh, and all our aims as social beings reach beyond our own lifetime to the lifetimes of our children, grandchildren, and so on. And only if we respect that transgenerational contract, as he called it, but it's not a contract, but that relation of trusteeship, if you like, can we really uh, be acting on the, in the interests of society as a whole, rather than the temporary, uh, uh, the temporary desires of its present members. That's a, a deep thought. It's very difficult to translate it into practical politics, but I think that, that the attempt to do so is what conservatism consists in. He also argued, as another principle, that most of the knowledge that we require in order to lead our political lives wisely and successfully is tacit. It's not stated. We can't put it out, lay it out in the set of axioms or theories. It's something which is inherent in us, in our activities day to day, but it's only there to the extent that we are engaged in the, in the business of society. It's social knowledge which we can't express in any other way because we hold it, as it were, in common between us. Uh, and you can think of a, the example of good manners at table. 
you don't have a set of rules as to what to do, but you know immediately how to respond to somebody behaving badly, how to correct somebody, how to, to govern your own behavior so as to be a genial member of the, of the little uh, organism of which you are a part. That's uh, tacit social knowledge, and Burke thinks that all of the most important forms of, of political knowledge are of that kind. He also believed that uh, this knowledge is contained in institutions, and that these institutions are not part of the state. Some of them may be uh, commandeered by the state, but most of them are the spontaneous byproduct of our ordinary social interactions. Uh, and uh, as an example, you might take this one, the London School of Economics, which doesn't yet belong to the state, uh, has grown over uh, a long period through the interaction of people who have wanted to pass on knowledge and to educate succeeding generations. Whether they did so or not is a matter of opinion. But nevertheless, this institution has an identity over time which includes many generations and it's not part of the state. And the knowledge that's contained in it is not knowledge that any of you could contain in your own single head. Uh, and this is a, uh, one example of, of Burke's ideal of a social order. His ideal was that social order should be built from below by the voluntary activity of people coming together in small groups, forming institutions, uh, giving birth to long-term uh, long projects in which each generation can inherit from the preceding one and pass on to the next. And that that's a process that ideally should take place outside politics. Politics should be, if, if you like, a byproduct of that. Uh, the, the way in which we, as it were, get together to settle problems in emergencies. Politics should not be the day-to-day -day business of society. It should be there to correct what we can't manage on a, under our own instincts. Uh, and that connected with another principle, which is one that has been associated not only with Burke, but with a, a famous thinker here at LSE, Michael Oakeshott. Uh, Oakeshott argued that uh, social uh, cooperation can exist in many different forms, but in particular, there's a distinction to be made between social cooperation, which has a goal, where you've got a, a particular purpose in mind, like making profits in a business or um, winning a war in an, with an army, and social cooperation, which has no specific goal other than itself. Uh, and um, an example of the, of the latter, of course, is friendship. A friendship does not have a goal, and if you try to give it one, you destroy the friendship. Uh, what it does for you is, some, is provide you with a, a meaning in your life which is contained within the friendship. Not, it's not a purpose beyond it. And Oakeshott argued that civil association, as he called it, which he meant the, collect, the complete association of people in a society, ought to be like that. It ought not to be constantly goal-directed, governed, with an order imposed upon it from above, with, a, with a, uh, uh, benchmarks to be passed and criteria to be met. It should be something which generates its own satisfactions unpredictably uh, and uh, out of its inner nature, as friendship does. And that is a, a wonderful ideal of social order, which I think conservatism ought to adhere to, um, and, and in its better moments does. But, of course, Burke had in mind 
this, uh, in describing this, the French Revolution, which was not like that at all. The French revolutionaries took control of society in order to direct it towards a goal, a goal external to itself. Uh, the goal d vaguely described, of course, as liberty, equality and fraternity, but nevertheless a goal which um, they, the revolutionaries thought could be achieved by conscripting people from above with a set of orders and commands. And I think we've seen the same with socialism since the Second World War. Uh, and that desire to um, take charge of things and impose an agenda on society with a goal to be achieved is something which I think is integral to the socialist mentality. But how, uh, how I think, um, have I, how many minutes have I been going? About 10 or 12. OK, so I'll carry on for a bit more then. Good. Um, <laughs> The, the, the question, I've just specified to you a, a vision of society which I've attributed to Burke, but you can find it in other great conservative thinkers, in Hegel, in De Mest, and as I said, in Oakeshott. Um, and um, I think it has a permanent appeal, but it has to be constantly re-expressed, as I said, because the historical conditions are always changing. But the great question that we face today in our age of the democratic process is how we can find a motive which would uh, enable us to sell that picture of society to the ordinary voter. It's okay if you happen to be wealthy uh, and um, on, the, on top of things. Of course you have a natural desire to conserve the social order. If you have nothing, on the other hand, uh, and you can see ways of, uh, of um, uh, depriving your neighbor of his wealth and, uh, and distributing it to yourself, uh, then that might be something that takes precedence for you over the preservation of the social order. And uh, so there is a always a huge question in conservatism, in whatever period we're talking about, uh, um, concerning the motive that, other, that ordinary people might have for adhering to it. Well, um, here I think one needs to look at the, the deep psychology of politics. What is the motive that, that people can uh, call upon when asking for sacrifices? What is the motive that, that uh, makes people surrender their own selfish desires for the common good? Well, it, uh, the obvious answer is it, it's love. That is the only motive that has ever been known, at least, that has um, generated out of ordinary human beings the capacity to do something for something other than themselves. And that's going to be an important fact uh, for conservatives in any form. This is why I think uh, conservative movements have, have lent heavily upon things like patriotism, localism, family loyalties, loyalties to, um, uh, to nation, uh, 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 to custom, to tradition, things to which people have become attached, things that they, they want to keep, not necessarily knowing why, but nevertheless knowing that, that as it were, their identity is wrapped up in them. Uh, that is the, the fundamental feature of love, that it's uh, an emotion in which your identity becomes wrapped up in something other than yourself. The family being the most obvious example, but I think all conservatives in the past have wanted to make uh, the, the total civil society into an extended version of that. 
Now, uh, uh, my view is that those motives remain important, that no conservative politics can actually succeed without them, uh, and that wealth creation is very, although it's important in politics, is less important than maintaining those motives in being. Unfortunately, conservative parties in Britain have been much more concerned with the matter of wealth creation uh, and uh, freeing the economy from the burden of the state and so on in order to be competitive on the international sphere. And most arguments given for political changes and for uh, actions in, in the higher stratosphere of government are economic arguments. Now, I don't say that those arguments are wrong. I agree with the free economy. I think it, the, the idea of a free economy emerges spontaneously from the kinds of things I've been saying. If you allow people to build their social order from below, then, of course, you must allow them the economic freedom that, which enables them to do so. Nevertheless, we have to remember that that can't be the whole of politics that social cohesion and the passing on of a particular inheritance uh, and uh, endowment of institutions is equally important, in fact more important, because without that, that social co cohesion uh, th there is no way in which wealth creation can endure. And I think this is one of the great problems that we have encountered. Uh, does our present Conservative Party uh, match up to this? Well, I think um, there is some evidence that in the sphere of education uh, that people, the present Conservative Party is aware of this. Michael Gove, at least, seems to be aware of it. Uh, I w I'm one of those people who had the good fortune of going to a grammar school. Uh, I, I emerged from the lower orders uh, in order to take, uh, to co combat, as people did in my generation, as best I could to advance through society to claim what I regarded as my legitimate share of the goods. And the grammar school enabled me to do this. My father, however, who was a, a socialist through and through, despite being a school teacher, was deeply opposed to education. He saw this as the way in which people like me got above themselves. <laughs> and I did. Uh, and I got above him too uh, and it, um, inevitably there was an enormous resentment which greeted, that greeted this process uh, and I understood from him that indeed there's a, there is a radical distinction between two, two ways of looking at education which have, have vied for ascendancy in our country. One which has been associated with the Labour Party sees education as a means to an end Okay, it's a, it's a goal-directed activity which has the transformation of society as the end point. It's a, an exercise in social engineering which, is dis, which it has the purpose of introducing equality, of equalizing people in an unequal world. It should be founded on non-discrimination, equality. And um, indeed, when in office, the Labour Party did its best to ensure that that's what happened. Now, the easiest way to ensure equality in education is to make sure that nobody gets any. Uh, and this, I, I think, is what happened as a result of the, uh, of the attack on the grammar schools. Uh, and um, it's something which has continued into our day, constantly harping on about, about uh, uh, not discriminating in education, making sure that everybody has a fair chance. 
that there is, there, there is no two-tier system and all this stuff, whereas the real goal of education is itself. It doesn't have a purpose beyond itself. It is the passing on of knowledge. And the institutions that are necessary to do that emerge, I would say, by an invisible hand from a tradition of scholarship, such as the grammar schools represented. My school had been in existence for 600 years, uh, 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 passing on what knowledge it could. And I think though that conflict is still very much with us and illustrates the, the distinction between the egalitarian philosophy, which has prevailed even under new labor, despite the fact that most of them were either grammar school or public school educated, interestingly, uh, and the kind of philosophy that Michael Gove has been hinting at. Uh, but, of course, uh, coming across the vested interests of the socialist state in doing so. Well, I, so I think I give him full marks for, for corresponding to something in, my, in the kind of conservatism I've been putting across. But uh, whether the rest of them have even um, thought about it is another question. And I hand it over to Daniel there. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to speak after Roger Scruton in one sense, uh, because he's uh, so distinguished and it's wonderful to listen to him. It's terrible to follow him in another sense, in the sense that he's always uh, scintillating and you feel a little inadequate to uh, try to talk about conservatism after hearing Roger Scruton. But I am going to try, and I'm going to try and answer the question about the modern Conservative Party. It isn't possible to do all of that uh, in the time available, but hopefully move a little bit towards it. The first thing I want to do is to question the question, uh, to ask whether it's really possible uh, for the new Conservatives not to be Conservative, whether Conservatism taken abstractly and removed from what Conservatives do really means anything at all. If Conservatism is an attitude, a broad sentiment, an intuition about Britain, it can't really be something followed only by a sect or not followed by anybody. Uh, it can't be something that when you look at the world you judge no, is a standard that nobody succeeds to because I think if it is that it isn't really authentically uh, conservative. I don't think I therefore even accept the idea uh, that it is possible for the broad mass of conservatives to have abandoned conservatism. Uh, they can have changed conservatism, uh, they can have reformed conservatism, they can have evolved conservatism, but I think a conservatism that exists without conservatives is a conservatism that doesn't exist at all. The second thing uh, is to ask the question, if it is an intuition or a sentiment or an attitude, what is it an intuition of? I think it is an intuition of the essential nature of the country and its institutions. It does have universal elements. People are flawed, big ideas are liable to failure, uh, tradition has great values. We are, as uh, Roger said, in a compact, not uh, just with each other, but with the generations that we succeed and the generations to come. But it is also exceptionalist. Uh, so Roger works at an institution, uh, the, the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, in which many members would describe themselves as conservative, 
but would talk in terms that are very difficult for British conservatives to relate to. And sometimes uh, conservatism in America and Britain uh, parts company very severely. Indeed, uh, Republicans would regard themselves as trying to make the, the essential Republican virtues of the American Constitution live and breathe in modern America. Uh, and an essential part of it might be uh, to uh, interpret in the Supreme Court uh, in a very strict constructionist way uh, what the Constitution was trying to say. We don't look at uh, republicanism in the same way, and if someone were to describe themselves as a republican in this country, we would see them as a radical, uh, because conservatism in America and conservatism in Britain are both about the same thing, intuiting the country's essential values and nature, uh, but they're in different countries, and therefore they emerge as different ideas. Um, and... Uh, I say it as an observation that while socialists have always been very, and liberals have been successful in creating international bodies, uh, conservatives have often failed. Um, and the, Europe, the problem with the European People's Party was that the centre-right parties of Europe all had their own conception based in a, a national um, identity, um, which might describe itself as on the right or broadly. Uh, I mean, even in, in Germany, they even use the word uh, conservatism to describe themselves, but might have a conservative base but doesn't actually uh, support the same set of ideas. It also means that conservatism changes as it perceives the world to change, as our understanding of uh, what the world um, is um, alters, uh, and uh, our understanding of the difference uh, between passing fashion and uh, fundamental ideas. I would give as an example of that homosexuality. My uh, view, and I'm a reformed Jew, and one of the things I argue with Orthodox Jews is that if we've sat in synagogue and prayed for a thousand years and failed to understand that homosexuality is not a sin, we've been wasting our time. Uh, uh, it cannot be the case that we can pray to God uh, for understanding uh, for that period of time and learn absolutely nothing. I think it rebels against a basic conservative instinct. Uh, if it is a compact uh, between the past and the future, it's one uh, in which we all have uh, a say, the future uh, as well as the past, and we can evolve our ideas. And uh, my final observation is that conservatism succeeds best when it is able to distinguish between um, issues of fashion and basic institutions. Uh, this came actually in, in its very sharpest form when Gordon Brown uh, appeared at the uh, Confederation of British Industries and refused to wear uh, a black tie. Uh, this was wrong because it was deeply rude and as we've now learnt um, was um, part of a pattern of behaviour. Um, but. Um, <laughs> But George Osborne, with whom I was working at the time, was very much against William Hague making an issue of Gordon Brown's uh, dress, uh, mainly because he said it failed to distinguish between a passing fashion, people wearing black ties, and, a fundam and fundamental issues of importance to us, like whether or not um, we had a high tax or low tax uh, economy and what, sort of, uh, and what sort of capitalism we believed in. And I think um, when conservatism is at its best, it's able to distinguish between passing fashion and fundamental institutions. I think that Thatcherism is understood best in those terms. When conservatives believe that Thatcherism is a timeless ideology, that uh, it can be taken out of the period when it was being practiced and be applied to any uh, situation in the past or in the future, uh, they fail to understand it and its success. 
they are better at understanding it when they realize it was a timely project caused, as Reagan's optimism was caused by Jimmy Carter's pessimism, caused uh, by, uh, in, in, this, uh, uh, in this instance, um, the, the sort of uh, weak failings of the British establishment to protect what she regarded as essential part of British behavior, which is the vigorous virtues of independent families and, ind- and, and individuals creating an entrepreneur's uh, building, and she was much less ideological than is commonly understood. For example, bailing out British Leyland, something that a free market neoliberal would never do, because she believed that Michael Edwards, the man running British Leyland, was the sort of manager we ought to support. And he, she supported him because he would, um, he would be, he represented the sort of Britain, Briton, that she, and for, he wasn't of course British, but that's another matter, that she regarded as, um, as uh, representative of the true national character and her project was to try to preserve the true national character institutions against uh, the, uh, the onrush of the state. Before I talk about the, whether the, how the Conservative Party currently fits with that uh, model uh, as I've discussed, I just want to make a final point which is of course from what Roger said much of what is Conservative isn't political at all. So while I would make the argument that it's very difficult for the Conservative Party not to be uh, conservative, uh, I do think it's also true that there are things uh, that Conservatives wish to uh, protect that are not uh, fundamentally political. So what about the modern Conservative Party? I would say that it is very much a Conservative Party and, and recognisably so. The Conservative Party under David Cameron is uh, deliberately, self-consciously moderate, cautious, respectful of its immediate inheritance, respectful of its long-term inheritance, and attempting to be a broad party of Britain uh, and fundamentally pragmatic. Um, In other words, um, it's... uh, what might lead someone to question whether it was a Conservative Party, the fact that it is uh, quite practical, pragmatic, and um, adapts to political circumstances is one of the things that I think makes it particularly Conservative. Perhaps the uh, shifts that David Cameron has made away from uh, the uh, traditional policies that the Conservative Party uh, followed in the 1980s are your leading indicator that he is indeed truly uh, Conservative, since Conservatism adapts to its time and it is uh, pragmatic and tries to be the representative of the broad mass of Conservative Britain, a a very um, broad, vague, intuitive idea uh, to which I I think David Cameron adheres. Uh, And one of the reasons why I think people say, but what does he stand for? Um, uh, I always have have argued uh, that um, what he represents is much more than a policy agenda, uh, and that is a distinctly conservative way of looking at him. Here are some specific things that I think uh, the Conservative Party uh, under David Cameron has been developing that are very conservative. The first is a new conservative idea of fairness and community. I wouldn't quite use the phrase love uh, that uh, Roger uh, used. I'm afraid that I'm more practical about it. uh, I think that we cooperate with others to whom we're not genetically related uh, because we think that they will reciprocate our favours. 
Um, we are therefore extremely careful to try to observe whether somebody is the sort of person who's likely to reciprocate our favours uh, and to distinguish between those people and those people who are not uh, likely to distinguish, uh, to, to, to reciprocate our favours. This leads to one very good consequence. Uh, groups of people cooperate beyond their family with each other and to a bad consequence, those groups have a tendency to fight against groups who are outside uh, their, uh, their small platoon um, and whom they think will not reciprocate their favours and therefore with whom they're in a rivalrous relationship. One of the great features of modern civilization is that the group of people whom we regard as being quite like us is beginning to expand uh, further and further. Uh, I know that one of Roger's um, themes in, in, in very uh, interesting intellectual themes has been his concern about the effect of television. Um, I believe that the internet and television are fundamentally civilizing since they turn strangers uh, into people we recognize as potential friends. Uh, and I think you can see that violence over centuries has declined, um, even though uh, we're more aware of the violence that's, uh, uh, that's happened. The proportion of people, as a proportion of mankind, who get killed violently in wars uh, between uh, platoons has reduced as our idea expands of who we are. And that will inevitably change conservatism because it changes that fundamental grouping around which we, uh, which we uh, regard as important. But conservatives under David Cameron have understood that there is a conservative idea of fairness, that it's very different from one, that, 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 that social justice is not an abstract idea put forward by philosophers who happen to argue that their particular conception should take precedence over others. It is an observable feature of the way that individuals coordinate their behaviour. Uh, and um, therefore, in a sense, there is a science of fairness rather than a philosophy of it. Uh, I think the Conservative Party has understood this and that it can articulate that and has begun to take to develop its policies around that because from this idea flows all of the elements of David Cameron's big society. The idea of smaller government, more personal liberty and decentralisation. The idea of encouraging little platoons and the idea of encouraging philanthropy. And incidentally, uh, the idea that government can encourage philanthropy or that uh, a Conservative Party can encourage philanthropy is due to a recognition that we are looking around to other people for our identity and trying to build our identity around uh, what other people in our social grouping do. Uh, if I asked people in this room uh, whether or not they knew how much to tip a waiter, they would all know that it was between 10 and 15 percent, but if I asked them how much of their salary it was correct to give to charity, um, they, you probably wouldn't know. Uh, and um, it is possible for groups in society, not necessarily political, not necessarily the state, to begin to encourage us to create new manners, uh, as, as one might um, describe it. But of course, I finish by saying conservatism uh, can, can the Conservative Party um, is conservative, but not in all ways. And one fundamentally important way is it didn't win the general election, and therefore it's, it's been required to uh, make a coalition with another political party which doesn't share its ideas. Uh, but in another way, uh, it's also not conservative, which is that all politicians are prone to attempt to have big ideas. Um, <coughs> and they all feel a great pressure to articulate what those big ideas are. 
Um, they all think, as Ed Miliband suggested the other day when he said that he was starting with a blank piece of paper, that a big idea is going to come to them in, a, in the night, miraculously. Um, and so I finish what I'm uh, saying uh, by saying that whenever I'm asked uh, whether I lament the lack of big ideas in politics, uh, I note that my parents were driven all the way across the world to escape people with big ideas, and I rather like the fact that in this country we don't really have them. Well, thank you very much to both of our speakers. As I said, what I'm going to try and do now is pick out two, or if we have time, three themes, which I'm going to put to, to both of you, um, to try and pick out some of these things and develop more clearly what your position is about the nature of conservatism as a position and the government's current stance on issues. And if I may, I'll just start with, two, with the related issues in um, what both of you spoke about, but especially first uh, Professor Scruton, related issues about the nature of knowledge and the dangers of reform. Now, um, Pro Professor Scruton emphasised that wisdom and knowledge is embedded in existing institutions and practices and traditions, and that is surely a, a position which Burke and Oakeshott and other traditional conservatives have held to. But partly for that reason, and partly because of a fear of the unintended consequences of reforms, especially radical reforms, conservatives like Burke, like Oakeshott and others, have been especially concerned to avoid anything but small and incremental change. And what I want to put to both of you is, can the current government's stance on the basic institutions of our country be reconciled with this position? Because one might say that what is happening to the university system, to the school system, to the National Health Service involve quite far-reaching, untested experiments of the sort that a Burkean conservative would find uh, disconcerting or troubling. So in that sense, could one say that the current government is conservative in that sense? Perhaps, Roger, if you wanted to start. It's a very interesting question. I would... Um, I think I would say that, that it can't be the case that all institutions contain the kind of wisdom that people like Burke and Oakeshott attributed to institutions in their normal form. You know, institutions can become deformed, degenerate. Uh, they can... Uh, they can stray from their inner life in the way that we do through disease. Uh, and then, you know, we need radical surgery. Uh, and I suspect a conservative can always justify some major interference with an institution on those kind of grounds. But it, first of all, it's necessary to show that somehow they have di diverged from their inner life. Uh, and I think, actually, what I was saying about schools under Labour governments was an example of that argument. I was saying that they, they, they were taken in an, a direction which was alien to their internal purpose by being made into instruments of social engineering rather than uh, institutions of, of learning and, uh, and knowledge. So um, I think that a Conservative can, under those circumstances, say, look, here is something that pretends to be a school but isn't. 
Uh, here is this place that pretends to be a university, but isn't really. I mean, I'm not saying that's true, of course, but LSE, but you, know, you, can, um, you can easily imagine yourself getting to the state of thinking that. Uh, and w with the National Health Service, you know, I think many people, not just politicians, uh, feel that something, de something deep has gone wrong. How to rectify it, of course, is another problem, uh, because uh, it could be that the knowledge required to rectify these things is not available. Um, so to summarise, your position is that these institutions that I listed are so seriously diseased that radical reform of the sort that Conservatives would usually disavow is in this case legitimate? I'm saying it might be. I, I'm not um, saying that it is. I, I think that uh, one must all... I would say the Conservative uh, approach must always be, be cautious. Mm. Yes. I would just say, well, my starting <coughs> point is to ask, to ask myself the question why there are both optimists and pessimists. If one of these strategies was evolutionary more successful than the others, then we would either be all optimists or all pessimists. The, the, the usual division is that the optimists are more successful in life and the pessimists are more correct. Um, and um, I mean, and, and, and this isn't merely the level of a joke, that's really what the research um, uh, suggests. Um, and c the Conservative Party consists of both optimistic and pessimistic people. Uh, uh, people who are very optimistic that their, that their reforms will, um, will succeed and other people who are more cautious. Oddly enough, David Cameron, whilst having an optimistic demeanour, is in any political sense a pessimist. And I have, one particular instance was very striking to me. I wrote an article about uh, neoconservatism and Iraq and Iran and I just put in a sentence about three-quarters of the way down saying um, the, the question of the neoconservatives is whether they were conservative enough, mm -hmm. just simply overestimating their knowledge and the practicality mm -hmm. of their project. And it was that, when I met David Cameron that evening at an event, it was that sentence mm -hmm. in the entire article that he picked out uh, as expressing his opinion. And mm -hmm. I think he's acutely aware of this. So the, the first thing to ask is, is it really true, as you suggest, that the Conservative Party is engaging in root and branch reform? Root and branch reform of the National Health Service might involve privatising the National Health Service. The Conservative Party hasn't done that. It has made the actually quite questionable decision that the National Health Service belongs in the essential uh, institutions of the country, that, that it is part of the national character. Uh, that's something that lots of people, uh, free market people, would question deeply, uh, even... Uh, and um, nevertheless, that is the position they've taken. The reforms uh, in, in, in education constitute a, uh, an evolution and a bringing along of the proposals left to them by the previous government. And they're deeply nervous about the radical noises they've made even in, in, in National Health Service reform. What they've done in tuition fees is to increase tuition fees but building on the basis that, uh, of the previous government. So they're not what Burke would see as a French Revolution type of reform. They're much closer to the American Revolution which he, uh, which he of course supported. So the, the, um, I would say that um, conservative the Conservative Party is actually in really quite gradualist. Um, just to add one last point to what Roger um, argued, we are, I think, also engaged trying to make those institutions um, less 
prone to being changed by the state and more able to change themselves through gradual, uh, through gradualism and tacit knowledge. So the idea is that in future you would not be able to do what the Labour what, what Labour and the Conservatives eccentrically did, which is to try to improve education by shutting all the good schools in the country, which is what they did with the grammar schools, which unsurprisingly ended in failure. Um, the, the, they are uh, instead trying to create a situation where those schools evolve their own character over time and the state has less control over which type of school exists. Okay, thank you. L let, me, let me pose a second question um, to you both. I mean, this, this question pertains to issues to do with markets and economic liberalism. Um, now, in your original remarks, um, Professor Scruton, the second main point you made, um, which is indeed true to the work of Burke and other Conservatives, was that these people thought conservatives, that is, that most knowledge is not contained in abstract theories. And um, more than that, that these abstract theories are frequently dangerous when imposed upon societies because they override the traditions and the institutions that we've just been talking about. And yet many of the reforms of the current conservative government have the quality of imposing the idea of neoclassical economics concerning markets on long-established institutions. And so it seems to me that a conservative conservative may be disconcerted about the extent to which the theory of markets is being imposed on the reality and texture of uh, ordinary life. Now, I, I think this um, pertains also to what um, Daniel Finkelstein was telling us about. Uh, Inasmuch as you saw Thatcherism as a part of the conservative tradition, and yet, of course, Thatcherism was, in one sense anyway, a version of a kind of uh, liberalism in which markets were seen as a central model around which to restructure institutions. So to both of you, perhaps again in the same order, I mean, how is it that we are to reconcile the imposition of this abstract theory of markets on the texture of life um, that conservatives say they value? This is a question that people ask all the time, and um, I think it's, it stems from a, a, an un underlying adherence to the socialist idea of economics. The socialist idea of economics sees economic life as directed towards a goal, uh, and goal being that of the you know, maintain maintenance of, um, of the uh, sufficient supplies of whatever is required and allocating those supplies to the people who need them and so on. Uh, and uh, and therefore, there should uh, argues that there should be a plan for doing this, uh, and this plan has to be coordinated and uh, and organised by people with the necessary economic knowledge. They centralise the information required and then act upon it. That idea is still implanted in people's minds that somehow that's what economics is about. It's about that kind of knowledge, and the the theory of the market. It's not, a theory, it's not a rival theory as to how you should plan society. It's a rival theory as to the nature of economic knowledge. It's telling you that it's not like that. It isn't, it, it isn't, it's knowledge that, that is destroyed by the attempt to collect it. Uh, uh, and therefore, this is at least what 
the great um, Hayek who was previously here until driven out by the socialists. Um, the, this is what he, would, he said, and I think incontrovertibly rightly, that uh, the knowledge required for the successful accomplishment of economic life is not knowledge that can be collected in a single plan. It's knowledge which is generated by the free interaction of individuals. That's, okay, that's a theory, but it's a theory which says you don't impose it on people. And so it has the opposite effect of the theories that, um, that conservatives would be criticising. Just, just, just one thing. Um, I mean, there's a famous book by Andrew Gamble. Um, it's called The Free Economy and the Strong State, in which it analyzes what happened during the Thatcher years. And, and what that book says is, contrary to what you said in your presentation, that markets do not arise spontaneously. They're underwritten by the authority of the state. So that in order to marketize large sections of a British life during that time, it was necessary to use strong, uh, he would say almost authoritarian measures with respect to certain congealed interests in the society, trade unions, local governments and so on. That, that suggests that it's not so, that it is a project and that the market is being imposed as a model contrary to what you just well, said. Well, this is um, becoming technical. Uh, uh, nobody would deny that, um, that uh, the operation of markets requires an underlying structure of law uh, because law allocates to people the uh, responsibility of, of upholding their own contracts uh, and uh, also markets are, are liable to certain diseases such as uh, cartels, uh, oligopolies and all those things uh, and it has always been regarded as one of the functions of law to break those <coughs> things down. That doesn't alter the underlying thought which is that economic knowledge is still tacit and present in free transactions and not present in the brain of any bureaucrat. Uh, uh, that is the fundamental thought which uh, I think um, you know, once you've seen that, you, that this debate doesn't seem as important as people like Gamble make it out to be. No, well, <coughs> I was reading the other day that in 1832 in Leeds, uh, that the radicals um, who supported the Great Reform Bill, while celebrating their victory, uh, fought the supporters of the Factory Acts on the streets. And the supporters of the Factory Acts consisted of the working class people who worked in the factories and conservative aristocrats like Lord Shaftesbury who believed in preservation of the social order. And um, that is an illustration that conservatives have not, not at all times uh, been the supporters or, 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 uh, supporters of what one might regard as free market um, policies, nor have, nor have they been that in all places at all times. Um, but... Uh, that does not mean that uh, supporting free markets does not accord with conservative principles. Uh, it is a modern conservative intuition that, the f that, 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 that Britain is fundamentally a liberal, uh, liberal um, economy, uh, that, that Britain is fundamentally a country of individuals working uh, to better themselves uh, in a system of law and property, and that uh, one of the jobs of conservatives is to try to make sure that that can happen. Uh, the distinction I mentioned between fashion and fundamental institutions um, refer, works extremely well when you're trying to decide whether it was the right thing to take on the trade unions in the 1980s and you had to decide whether that level of trade union power was really something that should be accepted as a sort of tradition of British life or regarded as alien to our traditions. 
And naturally speaking, there's lots of debate about that, which is why not everyone is a conservative or sees conservatism in quite the same way. Uh, and like all movements, uh, conservatives are diverse. Finally, just like with the question, well, just like with the point where you said the Conservative Party was radical uh, in these areas, I want to bring up the question of how neoliberal is the Conservative Party? Not really very. Um, this government is not a neoliberal government. It's for, a fortune is being spent on welfare state. It believes in a socialised <coughs> national health service. Uh, it has vast ways of regulating it. Everyone's <coughs> compulsorily forced to educate their children in, 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 in schools. Uh, tax levels are very high. Um, the conservative uh, li liberalisation that the Conservative Party has done over the, since the 1980s has been to shift things a little bit at the edge. It's been fundamentally conservative and cautious. Uh, so some of these, uh, and the idea that, that if you go to a Conservative Party meeting um, to advance the idea of neoliberalism, um, the members of the party would regard it um, as bizarre. The, the um, people think the Conservative Party consists of a, an alliance between plutocrats and uh, people who um, study at the, the Institute of Economic Affairs. And actually most people own small shoe shops. Um, and um, are not ideological at all, and they want the Conservative Party to win to preserve a certain idea of the way that their uh, communities and society uh, should exist. And the Conservative Party is not very ideological in that way, and it isn't in Parliament either. Thank you. Let me just get in very quickly one very uh, last question, and then I want to open it up. I, I'm just going to pose it very um, briefly, and if you, if you could just give me your brief responses to it, what your instinct about it is. Now, uh, um, Roger, in your book, The Meaning of Conservatism, you write that liberalism is the principal enemy of conservatism. And I want you to just tell us what you think, um, is that the case? And uh, if so, why? And Daniel, the same question, is it the case? And if so, why? If not, why not? I wrote that book 30 years ago. Um, but you republished it two years ago. If you noticed. Um, what, what I meant was that liberal individualism is the enemy of conservatism. The, the idea that uh, the purpose of politics is to satisfy the interests of individuals living now. Uh, and my view is no, the purpose of politics is to maintain in being a social order which answers to the needs of, in, of people living then and people living in the future too. Since conservatism, or any, indeed any political doctrine, only achieves change at the margin, um, I, uh, I think that uh, liberalism is in general a good influence on modern conservatism, uh, that it's generally teaching conservatives uh, tolerance for individual differences um, and uh, as an abstract doctrine which might govern our entire way of life, one might see that it was flawed uh, as an influence upon the uh, the things that conservatives do at the margin, it's not. And there is a congruence between conservatism and liberalism, which is that I think that liberalism won a lot of victories, uh, and Britain has slowly but short and surely become quite a liberal country, and therefore a conservative trying to intuit what Britain is really like will have substantial dashes of liberalism in their politics. Thank you very much. Well, now we're open um, to questions from the floor. Um, can I just uh, have see some people? Yes, the woman in turquoise in the middle here. Wait, wait for this, otherwise no one can hear you. 
Um, I've got a question specifically for Daniel Finkelstein. Frankenstein, sorry. Um, you said that um, big ideas were quite a bad thing, but you also kind of um, praised the NHS. Um, the NHS was surely quite a big idea, like free, universal healthcare for all. So, um, and so don't we kind of need big ideas? And why can't conservatives kind of intuit when good, intuit when good idea, big ideas are, can be good? The, the, the bigness of the uh, National Health Service idea was the worst thing about it. Um, it, it was a good idea to, uh, to have social insurance in health, but Anurin Bavan's desire to nationalise all the hospitals was a fiasco, um, which we're still a fiasco we're still uh, living with. So um, I, I'm just very nervous about the bigness of ideas. Some big, uh, I'm also very interested in statistics. Naturally speaking, if you have a range of big ideas, some of them will turn out better than others. Um, some of them will be a disaster uh, and um, it's a well one of my points although this appears to change the subject about the Iraq war I always argue is that uh, people try to isolate if different episodes of history and try to decide uh, whether that episode was a good idea or a bad idea whereas what you should really do is to see how that decision when repeated across a number of foreign policy conflicts uh, worked out the same is true of big ideas. I observe that on the whole, when you try big ideas over and over again, they tend to produce bad consequences, so I'm against them. Uh, but I do accept that occasionally they'll be above average. Okay. Um, yes, let's have Maurice Fraser here. Thanks very much. Um, I think it was, it, was, it was Chris Patton who famously said that uh, the facts of life are conservative. I just wondered whether you agree that that sort of distills the, continuing the, the essence of conservatism and, and, and what in fact, what might be meant by that and what Chris Patton might have meant by that. <laughs> Which of you is Chris Patton? Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, I, I actually fundamentally agree. I think the more that we've learnt, that it, since, since you said that, we have learned a huge amount about what human beings really are. What's being studied in uh, evolutionary psychology, in neuroscience, um, at game theory, we have learned a massive amount about human beings and their behavior that we didn't know at the time. And I think much of it does conform to the wisdom of what Chris Patton uh, said. Uh, I don't want to go into the naturalistic fallacy and say that just because it's natural, it's therefore good. Um, uh, nevertheless, I think that um, the idea that um, human beings are trying to replicate their own genes, uh, that they seek uh, institute, they seek uh, collaboration with each other because it's in their own interests uh, to have that uh, to have that um, relationship, um, and um, that that has developed into a form of altruism, uh, and that there are there, and that it's also developed into a form of preservation of. Um, uh, of traditions and knowledge because that uh, is one of the reasons why we even have language and relationships with each other. Uh, I think all of those things uh, support his wisdom. Uh, I think it also suggests that, say someone like John Rawls, who attempts to create a system of social justice by, uh, the way I always put it is he tries to look at what we would regard as fair as people if we weren't one. Um, and. Um, uh, he takes out, and it's amazing how easy it is to define an idea of fairness if you take out everything that makes us distinctly human. Uh, and what Chris Patton, I think, was driving at is that you can't do that. That in order to work out what fairness is, you have to understand what, a hu what human beings regard as fair. 
Um, can I just make the point that if you're up the back, you have to really wave your hands around because the light is dim and it's it's hard to see. Yes, this gentleman um, in the blue sweater. Yes, you, yeah. Thank you. Um, okay, I think a theme which emerged from both of your, your talks was that um, within the conservative tradition, you have, on the one hand, you have a sort of desire to see the essential nature of you know, a national sovereign state and set of uh, traditions and cultures being manifest in sort of political institutions. But on the other hand, you have an aversion to radical change and big ideas. Um, there was a very interesting documentary on Channel 4 a couple of weeks ago, which was entitled Britain's Trillion, Dollar Horror Sto Trillion Pound Horror Story. And um, I think to me, I, I, I watched that very interested by it. And th that particular program, I think, demonstrated the fact that Britain at the moment is in its current state, severely divergent from the sort of essential features that have traditionally characterised it. I think, Daniel, Daniel, you mentioned that intuitively conservatives feel that neoliberalism or liberalism is something that, uh, something that conservatives sort of adhere to in, intuitively, yet currently we're seeing uh, a state which is so bloated that sort of private competition, free markets are sort of increasingly... Uh, you know, being infringed upon by sort of state monopolies in the NHS, for instance, in education. So when you have this tension between uh, the country not effectively representing and manifesting its essential features, yet on the, at the same time you have politicians, conservative politicians, who are upholding their intuitions of not wanting radical change, how, how should this tension be resolved? I mean, do you think the conservative government, for, or the coalition, for instance, conservatives within the coalition should sacrifice their aversion to gradual change and actually implement even more radical changes than they would be naturally prone to do so in order to revert Britain to its sort of essential minimal state? Well, uh, <laughs> I suppose it's my turn, but I think it's a... The, the situation in which all Western countries, well, all countries, now find themselves uh, comes about partly because the fundamental principle of conservative thinking that I referred to, uh, namely that society is a, a, a relation of trusteeship uh, across generations, has been ignored. Uh, and this is one of the dangers of democracy, one reason why I think conservatives have to find the ways of tempering the democratic process. Namely, that, that you buy votes in the present by borrowing from the future. And that's what has been happening for the last 50 years. Obviously, socialism seems to justify that more easily than conservatism, but all governments seem to be doing that, mortgaging uh, the incomes of people who don't yet exist in order to maintain the levels of prosperity uh, which um, are in fact unreal uh, and I think this is, a, this is a deep existential and moral crisis that the world <coughs> is going through and it's going through precisely because conservative principles have been ignored uh, and you're right, how to get back from that is, is a real problem uh, it, it's a, what, what, one thing that I think all conservatives would agree upon is that it's easier to destroy good things than to create them uh, and um, this is something that has been happening 
before our eyes at how to reverse that process of destruction and still have the consent of the people is the great problem. If I had an answer to it, uh, um, then I could probably you know, uh, be up there myself, but I haven't. I, I would um, respond in two ways. The, the first is to say that although uh, it's not the case that the Conservative Party is adhering to some neo-liberal uh, vision, um, nor do I think it should, um, I think the, the, the policy of the current government is nevertheless quite a lot to chew off. And actually, I should probably have said that the position that the current Conservative Party is taking on the debt is fundamentally conservative. It is actually about a recognition of intergenerational fairness. Uh, and, um, and the really big uh, gamble and sacrifice of political uh, capital is being made um, in order to put this problem right. Um, and the only reward that you're going to get politically at the end of it is that you did so. Uh, and they are hoping that people will see that as a good thing. Um, so that's my first response. My second response is, while I understand the situation is quite bad, on the other hand, I would put the other case. You know, we live in a country in which property rights are broadly speaking, very broadly speaking, um, accepted. People have basic levels of political freedom. Um, we have a um, reasonable degree of prosperity judged by international standards. Um, we're not involved in constant wars. Um, that, that, that involve mass millions of people. Um, Britain is quite a civilised place. Uh, and, you know, uh, I mentioned my family. My family is in, you know, recent generations lived in much less um, uh, civilised places. My grandmother has just had a statement about the royal family uh, where she used to say, while the Queen is safe in Buckingham Palace, I'm safe in Hendon Central. Uh, <laughs> and um, I think this is a, quite a good description of the state of this country of a sort of big element of my uh, conservatism and why I don't completely go along with people who are very pessimistic about the state of the country. Right. Um, uh, this gentleman here, and I might start. Thank you very much for your, your comments. I have, I have two quick questions. The first is, it seems a little odd to me to define conservatism based on a method as opposed to a set of principles. It would seem to me eminently rational that if you believe that conservatism is something, then, it do, then how quickly we move towards it depends on where we are in relation to it. And we should move quickly or slowly depending on how close we are to that that set of conservative principles. The second question I have is a little more abstract from the comments you were making, but I'm, I'm curious what you think the role of, of Britain's longer-term history, specifically the, pro the way the Protestant Reformation happened, uh, is in the way we see conservatism, because it seems that that event was, uh, I guess, uh, very, very dramatically putting the, the religious and moral authority uh, under political authority in a way that hadn't existed in this country before. Uh, and are we still living in the shadow of that uh, as conservatives in Britain, in, in some sense. Well, do you want to? I'll try. <laughs> Protestantism is not my special subject, mate. I'll do that. Um, but the, um, the, I would say, with this, when, when you said uh, conservatism is a set of principles, not a method, I thought, yeah, you're American. And I'm Canadian, I knew I'd made that mistake. Uh, anyway, but in other words, in other, in other words, in, uh, I think different people see conservatism differently, but also it's seen differently in different countries. Uh, and um, it presents itself differently to people, precisely because it's not international and the principles are not the same that govern it in different places. And it's not seen, it doesn't describe the same, uh, and a conservative in one place wouldn't necessarily want to conserve the same thing in another. Of course it leads to 
particular principles uh, being observed at the time. But I just observe as a fact of history that those principles that have been protected and defended by people regarded as conservative in one period are not the same things that are preserved in a different period, even though the same method or arguments are being used to make to do the preservation. And Edmund Burke would have a very, you know, uh, wouldn't necessarily have supported in his time uh, things that are completely natural to a modern conservative, uh, but that doesn't mean that they both weren't conservatives. So you can probably do uh, Protestantism. Well, uh, I think, of course, we live it. We've we live in the shadow of the Protestant Reformation, but you know, this shadow, like all shadows, as they get longer, they get weaker. You know, uh, it's very dark in the immediate vicinity of the thing that casts the shadow, but when you are 300 years on from it, or 400 years on from it, then light starts creeping in around the edges, uh, and it's only a few people who still have that darkness in their souls, and just as well. Well, um, can I just get an indication of who wants to speak? We've had a, a large number of gentlemen questioners. Are there any non-gentlemen questioners? That... Uh, this woman over here, please. Could they be men, but not gentlemen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, I'd just like to uh, ask, with the uh, employment of the word change in the election by the Conservatives, quite a big word for them, um, how much of that was kind of electoral strategy and how much of it was ideologically driven by the need to change from what's been happening in the last 13 years of Labour government? Oh, I, I would say that um, the word change is a bit of political newspeak. Uh, it's used in order to pull the wool over people's eyes. Uh, Obama was the same with his, his election. It promised change. It didn't promise anything else. Um, and of course that change happened because he was elected. Uh, and um, there, there was a... There was a I drives, drove past an election, electioneering poster during the Obama election which said, uh, um, misquoting St. Paul, faith, hope and change. Said. And I wanted to add, and the greatest of these is change. <laughs> because that's, that's all that we had. But I, I, I would say that, I mean, obviously change was um, a political slogan. Uh, and I think most people would say, uh, and change didn't happen because he was elected. The problem with the issue is that uh, people want change in a very big, vague way. Uh, they're very keen on it. Um, uh, but nothing that you ever do will present itself to them as being that change because they, have an un, uh, they sometimes have, some have an unreasonable expectation of what that might mean. This, is some, this has been a, a real problem for <coughs> Conservatives down the centuries, how to be honest. You don't win an election by saying, we're going to do nothing. Uh, but you know, our, most, our greatest Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, is not known to anybody today precisely because he managed to do nothing. Uh, uh, he stayed in office for 18 years, whatever, on and off, and when asked what his philosophy was, he, sa he said, uh, he put, summarized it in three words. He said, delay is life. <laughs> and that's I, it. I certainly believe that historians massively overvalue uh, political figures who triumphed in times of conflict. I, I try to argue that James Monroe was the greatest American president because almost nothing happened during his period in office. Uh, no wars, very little instability, uh, very little changed, 
um, and uh, I thought that was um, to his advantage. I, I actually happen to think, in Tony Blair's case, that an, or, or an, uh, that the not doing things that lasted quite a long time was undervalued uh, by by lots of people. Okay, um, look, there's a lot of questions. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take them in twos. So um, this woman in purple, and then the the woman two behind her. How uh, how local should the big society be in your view? And, and two behind this this lady here. Yep. Yes, vis-à-vis um, -vis immigration and immigrants, could maybe the two of you give us um, your ideas? How would the conservative uh, approach be, or should there be any different from the Labour? Okay, so briefly, so we can have some questions. Yes. Uh, how local should the uh, big society be? Um, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to to. To measure, uh, yes, but the low, uh, no, no, oh, sorry, it's very difficult to be brief. I'm oh, sorry, right, sorry. <laughs> I thought there was an instruction. Um, it's very, um, it needs to decentralize to the lowest possible level, um, and it needs to be understood that the, the biggest, uh, the, the unit of the family and, um, and the individual is also a local unit, um, and not just uh, concern itself with, for example, decentralizing to local government. Um, so it needs to understand the creation of, of local institutions and trying to, uh, and you'll fight a lot of battles. Ring, removing ring fencing from school sports budgets has already caused a massive fuss uh, because it's presented as a cutting sport, when in fact what it's doing is allowing schools to make a choice. Uh, and so it's a, going to be a big political battle. The issue of immigration is a very uh, interesting one. It relates to, um, to what I've said. People, um, people do... Um, and if altruism is based on looking around at people and seeing who will um, reciprocate my favour, uh, there's a reason why communities, why, why there is a trade-off often between social cohesion and uh, mass immigration. Uh, and mass immigration is often in, the, in economic interests. Um, it's the reason why I, while believing strongly in immigration, I think that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why we would wish to share Britain's values with people from all over the world, and we, my family's benefited from it itself. Believe that it should be quite slow in order to allow people to integrate into the British way of life, uh, because I think that numbers play a role in that, because you are getting your values from your peer group, and uh, the predominance in that peer group of existing values and ideas uh, is very important in making people integrate into, uh, into the group. Uh, yes, I, I, w I would say that, um, that localization of our economy and our way of life and everything is a wonderful goal, but it's extremely hard to achieve. The only way I can think of achieving it, short of running out of oil, which would be obviously the greatest blessing that we could hope for, would be to narrow all the roads. Uh, and um, then people would really have to build up their communities properly, because there'd be a permanent traffic jam all around them. Uh, on immigration, I think that we're suffering from an ideologically motivated movement for mass immigration. The, the Labour Party saw immigration as a way of expressing its anti-English feelings, uh, largely because of its Scottish roots. Uh, <laughs> and um, and it, impo it imposed upon us this, uh, this uh, unsustainable 
inflow. Unsustainable because we're a small island. Unsustainable also for the reasons that Danny says, that, uh, that immigrants are a benefit only if, but, and they are if, they are integrated. And that means uh, they have to be surrounded by a culture which they're inducted into, rather than just uh, ghettoizing into their own culture. Okay, um, I've got a gentleman down here and then Alastair Cochrane up the back. Uh, this gentleman here. For new conservatives to be called truly conservative, shouldn't they stop talking about an entity called the state? Um, it seems to me that this is a wholly socialist concept and what they should think about when they're looking at governmental institutions are the various separate entities like the House of Commons, House of Lords, the civil service, central government, local government. At the moment, they profess in their rhetoric to be devoted to localization, but that seems to omit local government, which they treat and let me give you a phrase of a conservative MP, local government is the delivery agent of, central, of the central state. And that seems to me a wholly non-conservative approach. It would be better if they stopped thinking of the state and started to think of the institutions and the value of institutions at the local level that have their own voters and their own local tax. Okay, and then up the back. Yeah, I was really uh, fascinated that both speakers uh, uh, accepted that uh, traditional institutions can be changed, they can be altered when we decide that they're rotten uh, in some way. And I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, admission um, because I wonder how a conservative judges when they're when they're rotten. I wonder what they appeal to. Roger is in favour of his grammar school, um, but I mean, mine just taught me Latin and made me play rugby. I didn't, I didn't particularly uh, admire its values. Uh, Daniel is against the uh, NHS, but it's just... Um, uh, uh, or, I'm not against it. Oh, sorry. Uh, the nationalisation of hospitals. But the hospitals have just cured my illnesses, and every time I've gone there quite efficiently. So what, what do we appeal to? How do we judge whether uh, an institution is rotten under, under conservatism? The French revolutionaries thought that the state that they overthrew was rotten. I remember when my brother was at school, Enoch Powell came to school, and my brother said, uh, you say you're in favour of prejudices. Which prejudices are you in favour of? And he said, why my own, of course. Um, and um, you're completely correct that uh, there isn't any neat and tidy view um, that uh, covers everything and every conservative. Um, when you start doing what I was doing, which was appealing to uh, intuition and a sense of who the British people are and an attempt to divine what the national character is, and you accept that conservatism changes from time to time, you realise that pragmatic and practical judgments, prejudice and um, competing ideas play their role in defining what those institutions uh, should be that we wish to preserve. I don't regard it incidentally as an admission that I, uh, uh, because that's a negative term, that I believe traditional institutions should change. Some of them are rotten and some of them are not. Um, and incidentally, um, 
I think uh, that uh, some parts of the National Health Service have been spectacularly successful. You'd want to preserve them. Some bits have been a failure. Sometimes I want to preserve things I was completely against when they were created because I accept that my uh, opposition was wrong or indeed that the moment came and went for that opposition. Um, so I, I, you can't create, and this is the reason why I started by saying I wondered whether the question even made sense, is the Conservative Party not Conservative? You can't create some sort of abstract idea of what all these institutions are and exactly what you would do and the attempt to do that has I think, you know, I think drove the Labour Party bananas um, and actually only succeeded in winning power when Tony Blair realised that was actually not a very good way of trying to proceed um, and of course it's more uh, contingent and more open to debate and vaguer um, and more practical uh, and a little less consistent, but I don't think it's wrong for that. I, I think the, the other question is very important. I totally agree with it, that, that, with what you were implying. I wouldn't say the state is a socialist concept. I would say it's, um, it's a French concept. Uh, uh, and it, it, it denotes a centralised mode of, of political organisation in it. Uh, automatically. Uh, I, I think what you said corresponds to something that Enoch Powell used to say, uh, that, that our country consists, our political, in its political side, it consists of certain uh, institutions, the Houses of Parliament, the Crown, the Common Law, and so on. And these, the great thing about Britain, is, uh, or at least about England, is that these have, have emerged separately. Uh, none, none of them had uh, the command over the others that enabled it to centralise the power of the others. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing. And we've lost it, of course, because we've surrendered so much power to Europe. Uh, and uh, we, we now who do have a centralised uh, legislative system. Now we've got time just for two short questions now. Um, can I have that, that gentleman there? And um, you've been waiting for a long time down here. Sorry. <coughs> yes, that man there. Yep. Um, I just have a quick question for the both of you. Um, to use your imagery, so you said conservatives is both pragmatic, vague, broad, and intuitive, right? But concerning the topic of immigration, there still has to be an integration. So how do I integrate into something that's broad and intuitive and vague at the same time. That was, <laughs> that was the first question. That, that's the first question. And also, on the issue of a true national British character, which you mentioned, you said that conservatives, conservatism must change and must be pragmatic. It must be, it cannot rely on, how did you say it, abstract ideas. So for a recently immigrated person, let's say, would it not be, that comes from an ex-Commonwealth nation, would it not be pragmatic for them and practical to not only try to abuse the system in every way they can, because if they look at their personal history, that makes pragmatic sense. And if so, does that make them conservative? Can they run on a Tory ticket? That was my question. <laughs> okay, and, and this, this man down here. The second from the front, down, down here. Um, to touch on something you actually haven't really mentioned but goes back to the general theme of uh, conservatism, I was wondering if you could just very briefly sketch out what you feel that um, 
an appropriately conservative foreign policy, not necessarily in the traditional sense, but in to be adapted to our modern world should be, you know, as it pertains to trade, to institutions, alliances, military operations, and that sort of idea. <laughs> okay. Integrate with alliances and so on. Yeah. Well, well. Um, yeah. Outline conservative foreign policy in one minute. Um, it's uh, pursue the national interest as best you can, you know, and bugger the rest. Uh, and I think that's the same answer I'd give to the gentleman at the back. You know, that, that's yeah. We pursue integration. Uh, because that's in our national interest. It may not be in the immediate personal interest of the, of the recent immigrant. Uh, and then there is a potential conflict. But uh, th in politics, it's the majority that has to be looked after. Uh, well, OK, I, I would argue that conservatism is changing and will change in this respect, that we are developing much more of, an, of a world uh, idea of, uh, of who we are, uh, that that has been a driving force of, that, that, that basically uh, the, one of the consistent features of history is that we have um, cooperated with bigger and bigger groups and social organisations become more and more complex and will continue, and that will continue to happen, driven particularly by our gain, uh, taking steps each time we gain a new way of communicating with each other. You know, Protestantism, you mentioned, was really made possible by printing press um, and the ability to communicate um, uh, with each other what these ideas were and to, therefore to challenge those people who held all the information. Um, so I think that we will increasingly be embroiled in alliances with other people and we will increasingly come to view people who are not in our country is very similar to us. To your question about uh, can you integrate into something vague, one of the answers to that is you, you, have, you do it slowly. Um, I, I, you know, my own family is, um, has done precisely this. Britishness is very vague um, and it's not, it doesn't have the same features as American citizenship. It doesn't have a constitution and the uh, flag um, isn't used in the same way and it uh, it's not a country built around an, an, an idea, and yet I don't think we found it very hard as a family to understand uh, what the essence of being British is, even though other people may, uh, may differ. Um, but certain things, um, re uh, respect for the law and liberal democracy and other people's uh, property rights and uh, people, a certain sense of privacy and ways of expressing ourselves are you know, recognisably and understandably and, uh, British. And um, I think that uh, your final point is, isn't poor behaviour pragmatic? Um, I, I would argue that that's, um, that uh, conservatism can see that poor behaviour is not pragmatic. Uh, poor behaviour has been always been a, you know, a, an evolutionary strategy that's worked for some, uh, but for most people it doesn't work, which is the reason why we develop social institutions and why those social institutions have been very successful and why we want to preserve them and why we insist upon them, um, why conservatives insist upon an, um, the rule of law and uh, are keen to preserve, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why conservatives are interested in law and order, not just law but also order. Uh, and. Um, we would see poor behaviour as not being pragmatic either for the individual engaged in it or for the rest of society.
Could I add a very small point to that? I, I went, wanted to say this earlier when you mentioned evolutionary psychology, that it is possible also to defend all the things that both of us would agree about without buying all that nonsense <coughs> about evolutionary psychology. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's my way. It's a, it's a, it's a framework for arguing. I mean, you, yeah, can, yeah. you can you can look at it. Uh, but I think you it's can choose your own mystical technique. Yes, but I think it's very important to recognise you don't have to go all along the, uh, that path. Okay, well, look, whatever we've learned about evolutionary psychology, I do hope that you've come away with some new thoughts about what it may be that conservatism is. And I'd like you to join me in thanking our two panellists for an excellent presentation.